Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about strategy because that's where marketing starts. I don't think you can do marketing without understanding what the company strategy is, what's the objective and how do you plan on getting there? Because you're you're sort of out there on the front lines and need to, if you don't understand that, you can't implement effective marketing that's aligned with that because what got you from five to 10 million ARR isn't going to get you from 50 to 100 million ARR. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers Hello everyone, welcome to a special 100th episode of the SaaS Growth Hub podcast. What an incredible journey it's been since February 2017 and the release of the very first episode with our historic host Edward Ford. For six years now, we've tried to inspire you, our listeners from all around the world, with stories of success and failures from fellow marketers. Reta and I took over the show about a year and a half ago, and to be honest, we still feel like total imposters trying to fill Edward's shoes. But as we reached episode number 100 and just passed our 150k play milestone, we thought it was only natural to get the one and only Edward Ford on the show once more. After joining Supermetrics as employee number 32 and marketer number 4 in 2019, Edward is now Demand Generation Director at Supermetrics, a fast-growing SaaS company with a stunning 50 million ARR in a very competitive space. In this exceptional episode with Edward, we cover the secret sauce to Supermetrics growth, how to draft a successful strategy and get full in-house approval, a full funnel brand test Supermetrics ran and what they learned from it, and the alternatives to the traditional attribution models. So here we go for episode 100 of the SaaS Growth Hub podcast with Edward Ford, Demand Generation Director at Supermetrics. Uh, And that was our welcome to our guest of today, which is Edward Ford, who is the previous host of this podcast. Welcome back, Edward. Thanks so much for having me. Very cool to be back and to be on the other side of the table and, and the one answering the questions this time. <laughs> okay, I gotta. We we do have a topic we want to talk to you today about, and it's not uh, being nostalgic about your time on the podcast. <laughs> um, but before we actually get to the um, agenda of the day, I do want to ask you: Do you miss being the hot uh, the host of this podcast? Yeah, I do. I think it was so much fun. And I learned a ton interviewing all these different people from the world of SaaS and marketing. So for sure, I think just being able to discuss with those people and and be part of the podcast, uh, I miss it. But it's also great to listen to to you as hosts now and see see where you're taking the show. So <laughs> that's that's very kind. Um, I, this is probably the same question as uh, Do you have a favorite child? You don't know, but do you have a favorite episode of your time uh, on the podcast? I think one that is very special, which is when we kind of realized that, okay, this show is going somewhere or this could become quite big was episode number 10, which was with Bill Masaitis, former Mm -hmm. CMO at Slack and and Zendesk. And I was at a conference in Dublin at Sastock. I think it was like 2016 or 2017. And I saw him in line uh, for the lunch trucks, uh, the food trucks. And I saw my opportunity to just go and ask him 
hey bill uh i really like your presentation that you just gave and do you want to come on the podcast i knew he couldn't run away because he was probably hungry and, and <laughs> wanting some food uh, and he kindly said yes and and we had just got started with the show uh and we really saw after that episode about his experiences of building multiple unicorns that this podcast could become big and we saw an inflection in in the number of listeners and downloads and from there it kind of took off and it became so much easier to get people on the show as well when we said that we've had Bill. Um, so that I think is is probably one of the most special episodes. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic story. I didn't know that's how you managed to bag Bill on the <laughs> on the trucks. podcast. We we, yeah. we should start doing more things like that. Oh, Just, should. you know, globetrotting mm. and uh, ambushing big people. <laughs> what a perfect business case here. Exactly. Traveling. <laughs> okay, but let's move on from um, reminiscing about the podcast. Mm. Uh, we are actually talking... Today, we're going to talk to you about uh, your current company, where you are the demand uh, generation director, and that is Supermetrics. Um, and Supermetrics has had a wild growth uh, journey. Uh, you are currently a 50 million ARR company. So <laughs> it would be great to go through your entire growth journey, but that's an episode <laughs> completely on its own. So instead, what I'm going to do is... Um, maybe ask even the impossible can you kind of squeeze your growth journey <laughs> into into one answer you know what was the secret sauce to your growth how did you get to where you are right now yeah for sure we could do a whole episode on this but the the kind of short version is that if you're looking for a silver bullet or a kind of secret trick that just made it happen then I'm gonna unfortunately disappoint you I, I guess it's <laughs> no one single thing or there's there's no real secret source but i think one thing that is a recurring theme is constantly critiquing and reinventing what you're doing how you've done it i think that supermetrics is the same company but we've been different companies during different stages of our growth i think the company i joined is is very different to what it looks like today it's it's almost unrecognizable in many ways even though a lot of things have have stayed the same and we've been able to scale our culture and um, the values that we hold dear to the company and, and the way that we've built the team I think those have been been constants but we've always looked at what are we doing in terms of go-to-markets and what do we need to change so from looking at this from a very kind of commercial perspective so at first we were very product-led it was very much about building a global base of of users getting people into the supermetrics ecosystem and and trying products and and upselling and automating a lot of complex workflows because we only had three people in our sales team when i joined the company and now we have 120 or so people in sales uh they vastly outnumber marketing whereas when i joined it was the other way around we had more in marketing than in sales which isn't too common in b2b SaaS. So over time, becoming more sales assisted and, and looking at how we can grow ACV. And um, now I would say in, in this sort of third stage, we're, we're very regionally driven. So at first it was global product led, then it became sales led or sales assisted in addition to, to the product led motion. And now we're really drilling down on specific regions and looking at the differences between our key geos. And we have local sales teams, we have regional marketing coming into the picture. So as a and a global demand team that's really changing the way we work and operate um and 
you know, we've changed the way that we we sell. We've brought new products. We've experimented with pricing. We've done a lot to rework and elevate our brand, which I think is something we'll speak about later on. We've looked at how we structure teams and and ripped that up and changed it every so often when we've needed to. So just sort of constantly questioning what you do and reinventing what you do is has been key. And, and I think really at the heart of everything has been listening to the customer. I think constantly listening to what they say and taking feedback and probably the, the challenges we face have been the times when we've overlooked that or you haven't listened to the customer. So I think that's always the, the kind of key learning. So um, yeah, no one secret source, but I think um, I, I, that's probably the, the reasons why we've been able to grow as we have. Uh, that's fantastic. Can you um, give us an idea of your your numbers? Uh, I mentioned you're a 50 million AR company, and then you mentioned that you know sales people were uh, bigger at some points than, than marketing. Can you just kind of give us an idea of how who's responsible for your growth right now? How does it is it divided between marketing and sales? You also mentioned global demand team. Can you just kind of make that picture clearer? Who drive? Who are the people driving your growth and how you've organized that? I guess everybody's driving growth. Absolutely, everyone is impacting that. So, from from the the top in terms of our leadership team, coming back to our strategy for for twenty twenty three and beyond. Uh, all the way across the different teams. So obviously in marketing, we are at the very top of that funnel or the kind of beginning of the the customer journey, building awareness and bringing people into Supermetrics, getting them interested in the product and and ultimately starting a trial or reaching out for a demo or, or wanting to chat more with our sales team. Sales obviously working on closing deals. And then uh, a, a big piece has been obviously in, in all SaaS business models is the retention and expansion piece. So customer success uh, has been massive uh, for us in terms of retaining customers and, and expanding um, some of our bigger customers, customer support, ensuring that there's a great experience there and, and that we can support everyone who's using our products. Um, so really it's been across the board. All teams have their own objectives and this is where the OKR model comes in. Uh, and and it's super useful in that we have the big, lofty, ambitious company goals. And then that is then taken down on a department level and each department will then have their own way of impacting that number. And then teams within those departments, for example, the demand team, um, the brand team within marketing will have their own objectives. And, and what we focus on a lot is cross-team and cross-department collaboration. So we're starting to have more shared OKRs across different teams within the same department or then teams across different departments as well, which I think has been great to make sure we have that alignment. Because as you grow from a 25-person company to a 350-person company, that internal alignment becomes key. And it's so easy to get siloed and everyone ends up just doing their own thing. So that's been been key. But really, everyone has contributed to that uh, in their own way. Okay, thank you. And when you say, when you mentioned that, you know, uh, part of the secret sauce if there is one is to kind of constantly question how you do things and where you need to go and things like that i'm curious is that something how does that arise does that arise from the okr process that you know one team or, or two team figures out okay this is not working anymore and we need to uh, change direction or something like that how does that i guess i'm asking about the practicalities of you know constantly questioning what you're doing how, how does that happen yeah, I think you you just know when something isn't working 
you can obviously look at data. So for example, if you're looking at the performance of a specific marketing channel or campaign, you will see that you might hit a ceiling or, or it just doesn't become efficient anymore. Or you think that this isn't going to work. We've exhausted as much as we can here and we need to start thinking on uh, from, from a completely different perspective. Or then from a, a team structure perspective, for example, I think when we were kind of growing from four or five person team to a 15 person team, we had a structure that worked well, but once we got to around 20, it didn't make sense. And it was becoming too, too sort of complex or too heavy because we would often have the whole team on calls and everyone would quickly updating what they're working on. And we'd be able to make decisions relatively quickly. But when you have 20 people on a call, you can't just all give an update on what you're doing this week. It just didn't work. So there were periods when you realized, okay, this isn't working. We need to just throw out everything that we've done and, and maybe rethink this from scratch again. So at times, you know, but also data will show you that that certain things aren't working, whether it's a sort of performance issue or if it's an internal process issue, for example. So as you mentioned, you've been kind of changing how you do things and constantly evolving and so forth. What's the next um, stage of your strategy? And what are the factors behind um, those changes? Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important to talk about strategy because that's where marketing starts. I don't think you can do marketing without understanding what the company strategy is, what's the objective and how do you plan on getting there? Because you're you're sort of out there on the front lines and need to if you don't understand that you can't implement effective marketing that's aligned with that so really as i said earlier it's about const constantly reinventing what you're doing and and what the objectives are and what is the next chapter really of of growth because what got you from five to ten million arr isn't going to get you from 50 to 100 million arr so it requires like strong leadership and and a clear vision of where you're going as a company um and now we're just at that next phase of changing things up and looking at okay this is where we're going as a business what does that mean from a marketing perspective um and in terms of the factors there's a lot of things going on so obviously externally you look at the market what's happening in your industry right now so in our case what's happening within the field of marketing measurement uh, and then in addition to that since we primarily to marketing and data teams as specialists in the integration of marketing data it's really about understanding what's on the cmo's agenda right now how can we speak in terms of like what messaging is going to speak to the cmo of today and you know a big piece is efficiency for example right now um, in, in this market so kind of thinking about these things uh, and understanding what is it that will get your message um, kind of what, what message will really speak to to senior decision makers in, in the companies you're trying to reach, whether it's CMOs or it might be CFOs, depending on what you're selling, or if it's head of people ops, um, just understanding what that is. And then we also look at what our customers are saying. That's a huge piece in terms of guiding the direction of the company. Um, and, and then you need to make some bets. I think it's about making a bet on this is what we think is going to happen and this is what we think we should do. And that typically comes top down. And then it's just a case of aligning internally on where we're going to support the goals of business. Um, and in, in true supermetric style, we often like to test things. We like to use data to make sure that we're moving in the right direction strategically. 
Um, and I, I can give one example in a moment when we kind of speak about the full funnel brand test we did, which I think was one of the coolest experiments we've run. Uh, and, and really just use data as a signal to inform, are you moving in the right direction um, from a strategy perspective? Uh, so that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, and those are probably some of the major factors that have influenced our decision. Okay, uh, I want to get into the full funnel brand test that you already mentioned, because um, yes. I know what it is since you came to visit us and told us all about it when you were when you had done it. And I think this is like one of the most fascinating experiments I have I have ever heard of. So I do think that a lot of people will find value in this. So can you tell us what did you do? Uh, what kind of things you discovered through that test? And then how did that help you kind of look to the future and move forward? Yeah, this was super interesting. And we could probably have a whole episode about this. So I'll try to give the the kind of overview of, of the experiment and a bit about context. So we were kind of at that crossroads where the next chapter of growth was beginning. And we had some big questions to ask and, and obviously we needed to answer them. And one of them was on the the brand. And so brand, when we speak about brand, my my view is that it's it's really about the perception people have of you as a company. It's like when they think of Tesla, they think of something. And when they think of Volvo, they think of something else. And when they think of Mercedes, they think of something else. Brands need that strong identity in SaaS as well. So when people think of supermetrics, what are the words and what image do they have in their mind? And coming back to what Bill Masaitis uh, said in, in his episode number 10 that we spoke about earlier, he gave the best definition of brand, which is sort of my my definition that I use. And he said, the brand, your brand is the sum of every single touch point a customer has with you on their journey. So it's the sum of all parts, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, it's going to impact your perception uh, of the brand. And we had developed a, a relatively strong brand in, in our space. We were one of the first movers. And I said earlier that we'd been very product led in our approach at first and, and Supermetrics was uh, really built for the marketing practitioner. So anybody who needed to bring marketing camp marketing data, uh, particularly web analytics or performance campaign data into their reporting tools, whether it's a spreadsheet or whether it was um, a dashboard in, in Data Studio, wherever you needed it, Supermetrics would just let you move that data really, really easily into those reporting and analytics tools of choice. The brand had been... Uh, you know, pretty emerging, very startup-y. We'd gone down that whole pastel colors and comic book characters thing, which was what a lot of companies did in, in B2B and SaaS a few years ago. But it worked quite well. We At least the numbers were good and um, everybody seemed to like it. Our CEO liked it, of course. But um, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. And we didn't really know for sure, was this the right way to go because obviously when you want to reach larger organizations when you are speaking with more senior decision makers whether it's in marketing or, or data then the perception becomes really really important there particularly with things like trust security when you're working with market with data of any form and so we had this discussion that which direction should we take the brand do we stay true to our roots and stick with this kind of fun startup-y tech emerging company or do we go towards a more established position we we're one of the the leaders in our space 
got a huge amount of users, huge amount of customers, uh, and and we saw strong demand in in like the larger enterprise space. And that was the big question, uh, and particularly in in certain markets like our more established markets, we had this strong position. But then the flip side is that in new markets and emerging markets, maybe this more approachable brand identity would would be the way to go. So that was the background, and our CMO was like, "Let's test it." She came in with this idea, and she said, "Let's build two completely different brands." of supermetrics. One would be like super, super emerging and the other would be super, super established. And our existing brand at that point was somewhere in the middle. And we built these two new identities in like two weeks. It was super wild and, and wacky and they came out so different to each other. And then what we did is that we ran nine tests. We ran seven across the full funnel. So top, middle and bottom. We built like live landing pages that were out in the the wilds of the internet and we were directing traffic um, from all these different campaigns to that landing page to see if people would click and, and convert on that landing page and we also did a brand lift and an ad recall test so those were the nine tests and we just wanted to see which of these would win and it was really interesting because we all had our opinions and we all had um, our thoughts on which one we think would win but then people were starting to get drawn towards one that they liked more. Like, oh, I really hope this one wins because I like it and I think it's it's nicer and I think it's it, it's it's more me or something like that. But it was a complete landslide. So one of these brands completely outperformed the other. There was a statistically significant win in seven of the nine tests for one brand. The other brand won one of the nine tests, but it was so close that it was not statistically significant. So we couldn't be confident we'd replicate it again. And then we got one no result. So we we're quite surprised with such a strong read from the market. So it was a clear signal from the market what resonated better with, um, with, with our audience. And it was the established brand that came out on top. That helped guide us in terms of the direction the brand went. And if anyone had an opinion, we would just point them to the results like, well, it's a clear sign from the market. It's not really about which one we like more. It's about which one is going to impact our business going forward. And from that test, it was clearly this direction. So we didn't quite go as hard as we had pushed in the test. We, it was a little bit, uh, both of them were maybe not quite as, as supermetrics as we wanted. So we kind of brought it back a bit. We made it ourselves. Um, it wasn't quite as as stiff and, and corporate as the the brand we put together in the test. But now if you go and look at Supermetrics and com compared to our older, older iteration, you'll see that it's, it's a little more grown up. Uh, and we actually got feedback from one senior uh, member of our product team who was like, it's like we've grown up overnight. And uh, <laughs> it really sort of got some internal buy-in and people were excited about it as well. So that was the test and, and that was the result. And when we went into the rebrand, we were super confident because we knew that if we're modifying the brand in this direction, we know that the market is going to respond in the right way. We've done the test. We've seen the conversion. Um, we've shown that our website is working. We even built a micro site of like six of our top performing pages and then directed traffic there as a sort of step between the full release. So normally when you do a brand renewal and update your website, it's a complete leap of faith. You have no idea, is it going to work? You just build something that you kind of like and you think represents the brand that you want to be perceived as. You hit publish and you just basically pray your website doesn't break. You pray that your marketing funnel doesn't break. Whereas we didn't have that. It was the first time I've ever gone to one of those uh, 
re renewals with some level of confidence because you knew you knew from all the testing this was going to work and, and we've seen good performance uh, and, and in improved website performance on the back of relaunching as well when we did it. So that was the test. It was very cool. Thanks for going that over because it, I it's it's kind of hard to um, visualize this on a podcast. You know, it would be great if we could show like the two different visuals or whatnot. But I can, you know, when you showed it to us um, here at Advance, it was so mind boggling. Like the established brand won in your case, and I had voted against it and things like that. But it made it makes total sense in terms of what you guys are going forward with and what you want to achieve achieve later and I, I it was the first time when i ever heard of a brand test like that and i think that it's a fantastic way to kind of take that uncertainty in brand renewal projects that you just so well described but how would you uh, kind of uh, we can talk about this for like ages the brand test it's such a uh, it's super interesting do you have any kind of pointers for our listeners, if they want to do similar kind of test, is there any, what are the pitfalls that people should watch out for? Yeah, I guess just questioning why you'd want to do it in the first place. I think if you're at a stage where you're unsure in terms of the direction you want to take the brand and how you want to build that perception, this is a really good way to do something relatively quickly and cost efficiently. It didn't take us very long to build the two brand identities. It didn't take us very long to create the ad campaigns and, and the assets. And we got a result relatively quickly, like within two, two to three months from starting the the project, we had an initial, we had some form of feedback from the market in terms of what direction we should take. So I think really just figuring out why you want to do it and building a, a an experiment framework and then just making sure you update and communicate clearly why you're doing it, keep everyone involved. It was a great way to manage senior stakeholders outside of marketing in terms of the direction you want to take the brand, particularly if you have a founder CEO um, like we did, where you can just really show the data and show that this is the direction we should go. And I think the other good thing with this is that we often speak in marketing about how do you measure the impact of brand and no one has really figured out a way to do it, or it's very hard to do or communicate clearly, whereas this was one way we we found we could do that. We could show the impact of brand A versus brand B, and we could also take our existing performance as another baseline. Um, and, and I think the interesting thing from this experiment we found is that both the, the brand variants we built, the emerging and the established, both of them actually outperformed our existing site. So in a way, it didn't matter which one we picked, we would have probably seen it, we would have definitely seen an uplift in, in performance, but we saw that one of those variants, the established, outperformed the emerging uh, significantly as well. So so it was a, a clear signal to to move the brand in that direction. So I think those would be some of the key learnings we had from this. Perfect. That takes us uh, beautifully to the next topic of on the agenda, because we want to talk more about, you know, measuring the impact of marketing, which is, you know, the heart of what you guys do as, at Supermetrics. And showing impact is kind of the as we all know, the holy grail of, of marketing. and But we also know that it's kind of difficult or it can be very difficult. And there are you know problems in how it's measured and attribution models and all that jazz. So considering you work with marketing data and it's your business, where do you see we're going with marketing data and measuring the overall impact of marketing? Yeah, there's a lot going on right now around measurement within marketing and there's 
there's a lot of challenges as well. And I think these are some of the major ones that, that we see. I'll give you four major challenges that, that we see right now. So obviously cookies, number one, that's been the foundation upon which a lot of marketing measurement online has been built upon. Third-party cookies are going away. So you just need to completely rethink how you measure it's, it's like we spoke about earlier with strategy. This is a change. It's time to rethink what you're doing from a measurement perspective. Tracking is another one. Obviously, there's an increased focus on, on privacy, which is a good thing. I think the internet was a complete wild west when it launched. There was no regulation. You could basically see what anyone was doing if you wanted, and it was uh, terrible. So now that we've got better privacy laws in place, uh, it, it, it also then is is something that you need to, to work around and think about as well. Um, so, so that's happening. And then we're also using more technology than ever before. You've probably seen Scott Brinker's MarTech 5000 landscape and each year it's bigger and bigger. And I think there's over 10,000 different MarTech tools. More technology means more data sources and more data sources means more marketing data. So you have even more data to work with. But then the other challenge is that of data ownership. So this large amount of data that we generate does have a best before date, particularly in certain platforms that you only have access to a certain amount of historical data. And if you want to look back at historical performance, if you want to do any form of benchmarking, uh, if you want to use more complex models, which rely on larger data sets in order to work, then you need to take ownership of your historical data. One example happening right now is the sunsetting of um, universal analytics in, in Google Analytics and the shift to GA4. So if you want to keep access to all your historical Google Analytics data, you need to somehow centralize it and take ownership of it before it disappears. Um, and then you would make the switch over to GA4 or uh, an, an alternative, depending on what your, your plans are there. So those are some of the challenges happening right now. Um, and, and so what you kind of need to do is, is look at, look at uh, a few different things. I think what we're seeing is first party data strategy as uh, an objective for marketing teams, which is really about taking ownership of your marketing data, bringing it from all your different sources together in one centralized uh, space. Typically that takes the form of a marketing data warehouse. Strong data governance is then the, the next one. So making sure that you adhere to like good data practices. One of our sales engineering has, has a bit of a mantra of crap in, crap out. If you have really crap data, you're going to get really crap data, uh, crap data coming out of it. And then you're going to make decisions, which are probably going to be crap because um, you're just making it based on on the wrong data uh, or inaccurate data, which is not reflecting reality. So having strong data governance is key and looking at data on different levels. And, and we like to think of it on a kind of small picture or a big picture level. So we call this zoomed in data versus zoomed out data. So zoomed in is really about using data to understand specific micro events, certain marketing activities. It could be email send outs. It could be a specific campaign that you've run. And here spreadsheets, dashboards are, are really good ways to follow um, that performance. So for example, our full funnel brand test would have fitted quite nicely into this. It was a very isolated event. We could see the impact um, and we had our reports and we could go and show this to the CEO, to the CFO, to the management team. And all of a sudden with data marketing leadership can have very objective discussions with CFOs and CEOs, which is typically the kind of people they are. Um, so this sort of zoomed in little picture data is, is one thing you need to look at. And then on the flip side, you also need to do zoomed out 
Um, so this is really taking a step back and understanding how your marketing as a whole is performing. So looking at efficiency or profitability of, of different marketing strategies, or it could be a, a sort of combined marketing efficiency performance. So combined CAC LTV, for example, over a longer time period. And here you need centralized data and centralized tools to be able to answer that. So this is the big picture piece. Um, and I know that we speak a lot about attribution and that's been the go-to model for measuring marketing performance, particularly in B2B. But attribution has so many limitations, particularly now as we're seeing crackdown on, on cookies and tracking and, and pixels. Like cookies and pixels were like the bread and butter of marketing measurement. And we don't have cookies, we don't really have pixels. So, um, and, and you'll never be able to track every touch point on, on a journey. But it is very useful for, I, I think, understanding what's happening on a small scale. If you're doing specific email sendouts, you can really track that. Without a full funnel brand test, you could use some form of attribution to to track the steps down that that journey. Um, so it works, and I think combining it with things like um, self-reported attribution, which is where people actually just say how they found you and how they heard about you, whether it's captured on a form or through discussions with opportunities in the sales process, and then the sales team will put that into Salesforce and you have, again, data governance comes back to this. How do you manage that? Um, so that's also uh, a, a good way to to kind of overcome the limitations of, of attribution. So I think these are some of the things that you can should be thinking about and how you can show impact with, with data and, and what's happening right now in this field in terms of marketing measurement and showing the impact of marketing. Um, that was a very comprehensive list. Thanks for that. And the thing that uh, is behind there that you also mentioned was kind of the privacy first environment that we have to work with uh, now and even the future. And one kind of mantra that I hear from marketers is that, you know, we will have less and less data to work with when we go forward. And I'm wondering if that is actually the case because you know the things that you just went through you know first party data having stro strong data governance and the tests you can do with with your own brand and things like that is it is it actually the case that we have less data but or is it the case that we just have to figure out where else we are going to gather that data from and how we use it yeah i, I don't think we have less data i would agree with that i think if anything we have more data um but more data is not the answer, I don't think. It, it's really about how you use that data and making sure you have the right kinds of data and that it's um, in the right formats. It, it's orchestrated uh, so that every everyone is seeing from the same hymn sheet. Um, and I think the more data you have, often that means that you're looking for a needle in a much bigger haystack because data is really about uncovering insights, which is going to help you as a marketing leader or as a marketer, make better decisions or, or more confident or more informed decisions. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that um, for sure there are a lot of challenges. And one of those is the fact that there's more data um, as well, not less data. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> is it more, more about quality than quantity at the moment? And we're kind of going back to basics as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think, quality for sure like it, it, it's really important that you have good quality data but then you also need a certain amount of data if you're going to look into alternatives or alternative ways of measuring marketing impact and we spoke about attribution and some of the limitations and, and challenges 
of that and it didn't really live, live up to the promise um, it, it once held. And so another thing we're seeing is it, marketing mixed modeling as an alternative to that. And there, yes, you need a, a lot of data for, for something like that to work. Um, but also it's it's about having the right kinds of data so that you can enable that. Um, so I, that's also something I'm happy to go into in, in more detail if there's time or if you wish. Well, actually, since you now mentioned uh, the marketing mix modeling, uh, what kind of alternatives do you see to the traditional attribution models that you kind of already said that they are a bit bad? <laughs> so is marketing mix modeling one, yeah. one of them? What, what other options uh, are there? Yeah, for sure, this is one that we're seeing come up more and more. A lot of people are talking about this. And I think it's definitely the next step on on the marketing measurement journey. And this ties back nicely to first-party data as a strategy and, and data ownership, because you need to do that if you're going to um, go down the path of MMM, so marketing mixed modeling. And uh, basically, this is a good way to, to measure that big picture marketing performance. So I spoke about zoomed out data. This aligns very well with that. So attribution tries to understand, well, my my view on attribution is that it's it's good at understanding the impact of certain campaigns or activities that they had on, on results on, on a sort of micro level. But MMM is really about understanding the impact of all your marketing on business. Um, doesn't rely on clicks and cookies, but what it does is that it sort of helps you answer questions like, um, say, for each dollar that I spent on advertising in this channel, I got $2 back. And for each dollar that I spent here, we got $3.50 back. And it's more forward-looking. It gives marketing leadership more confidence in where to invest. And for CMOs, that's super, super important in order to be able to have discussions with CFOs, CEOs, and, and speak quite objectively. Um, and it also looks, about, looks at things from an in incremental gains perspective. So... What it does is that it takes a, a baseline of if you stopped all your marketing activities today, if you turn all your campaigns off, if your marketing team went and uh, you know had coffee for, for the next few weeks and, and just hung out, what would happen to your baseline performance? Uh, where would you, you land? And then it looks at the incremental gains on top of that baseline. So it's looking at aggregate data and looking at marketing's impact on that um, on that existing baseline based on market demand. Uh, and it looks at things from a correlation perspective. So it's not directly saying that X caused Y or that there's a strong causation because you can never be 100% certain. Um, but you need a decent amount of marketing spend in order to unlock marketing mixed modeling. Uh, you need a lot of marketing data and you need a good amount of data science know-how to, to make it work. So we see it more on the sort of larger business end of the spectrum where there are bigger brands on a global level with more budget with dedicated in-house data and analytics teams um, but i think co combination of, of traditional attribution and mmm um, is a good combo to have in terms of measurement because you can get that micro zoomed in uh, understanding and then the sort of macro zoomed out understanding um, as well um, I do want to get into one question that our producer, Clem, really, really wanted to ask you. <laughs> so this is for you, Clem. So um, is, your, is there a go-to funnel for B2B SaaS companies? Or in, in your opinion, do, is, there, is there like one funnel that, for example, B2B SaaS companies should be 
using? Or do you have a go-to funnel that you always want to look at or use? Basically, no. <laughs> That's the short answer. I don't think there's a go-to funnel for, for B2B SaaS companies. I think each company is so different. And even if you look at Supermetrics, what we would measure when I joined was very like high velocity, low touch, self-serve sales compared to now where we have much longer sales cycles. We have regional sales teams who are selling in, in sort of very different markets. And so the funnel looks completely different now than it did then. And that's just within the same company. And I think if you go out and look at different B2B SaaS companies, there's no one go-to funnel. And I think the funnel is, uh, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the funnel. I think, yes, it helps you simplify something that is quite complex to make you think that you can somewhat understand what's happening, basically how do buyers buy. But it's also a slightly fabricated way of measuring how you think buyers buy or your you're kind of putting people in a bucket like this is how how it happens and customer journeys aren't linear you'll never fully understand how customers buy and um so yeah it does help simplify but you need to take it with a with a pinch of salt i actually think funnels are quite good for specific offers or specific campaigns like if you're running a certain email campaign to a segment of your user base or prospect base that you could then track the performance of that in a sort of funnel like way or if you're running a webinar targeting existing customers and your goal is an expansion or an upsell, the funnel, again, is a good good framework for measuring the performance of that specific um, one-off thing. I think, yes, you can use the funnel for your wider customer journey as well, and, and we do as well. We have specific steps that we look at, um, but you need to know that people might not go through every step or they might take a different route. So it's about offering different ways for people to buy based on how your customers buy and you only get that by speaking to them and, and making sure you cater for different ways so if people want to buy self-serve at supermetrics they can if people want to have a demo and understand how the product works they can if they want to have um, a lot of discussions with our sales engineers and they want to get into the nitty-gritty on data security and um, how we work with data and and have their cio and um, cdo on calls as well they can do that so just understanding how your customers buy and catering for that in your different journeys, um, that I think is critical. So you pretty much would actually start with your customers instead of a framework or funnel. You just start from the data, would you? If you, if you start building some sort of funnel, which comes first, the funnel or the data, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a good question. It's like the chicken or the egg. Um, I guess you can look at data to figure out how do your customers buy and then you align the steps with that. That's probably the the better way to go for it. But if you're starting out, you need to have some some starting point. So you probably put together your best bet um, on this is how it's going to work. And of course, you can speak with prospects and, and get feedback on, on what the best way is. But um, it really kind of comes back to the business strategy and the go-to-market and the pricing and the sales model and everything tied to it. So, um, yeah, that's probably where, where I would start. Great. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Edward, so much for all your answers so far. Uh, we have one, one last segment to go through. The fast uh, five. <laughs> yeah, which is normally yes. the fast five. But mm -hmm. in honor of you, we've actually changed it this time. We've added a question. So instead of having fast five, we're going to have a speedy six. 
<laughs> oh, I like it. Mm-hmm. So in, in honor of the 100th episode and the fact that you came back, there is a little surprise question for you at the end. But um, are you ready? Can we uh, start firing questions yeah. at you? Perfect. Let's do it. I've been waiting a long time to do this. <laughs> Here we go. Well, you did ask it for like, what, 87 times or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> 84, 84. 84, okay. Um, Okay, what book or books are you currently reading? I just finished Screw It, Let's Do It by Richard Branson. And now I'm currently reading Blast from the Past and uh, from the world of fiction, The Girl Who Played With Fire by Stieg Larsson. A SaaS company you love and why? I really like metadata in terms of what they're doing with their marketing. They're doing some very cool stuff with a very small team. um, So there's a lot companies can learn. What is your favorite place to read about growth? I have two, LinkedIn, and then basically anything from OpenView and and Kyle Poyer in particular. Uh, What is the most important growth metric in your opinion? Net revenue retention, and I'll throw a new client ARR as well. (laughs) Uh, What is your best piece of advice for fellow SaaS marketers? speak to your customers. So I think everything you need to know as a marketer can be found by speaking to your customers. And then finally, what was the most important learning from being the host of the SaaS Growth Hub podcast for, was it five years? Something like that. Yeah, four or five years. Um, There's a ton of learnings. I think one thing that really stood out when I spoke with all these different people is that no matter how successful people are or companies are or appear to be i think everyone is still trying to figure this out so no one has felt like i've worked out how this game works marketing and growth and SaaS is super hard it's not easy and it's a constant journey of learning as i've said just as we figured things out here we have to completely go back to the drawing board and and start from scratch again so just stay humble don't be too hard on yourself and and just have fun and enjoy it Awesome. Oh, that's that makes me so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you, Edward, for coming back for these episodes. Uh, yes, thank well, you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and remember so to celebrate the 100th uh, episode uh, benchmark today. I believe you got some bubbles. Yes, I do. Stupid. And a hat. I'll put the hat on. <laughs> I do had it for the whole episode. It's okay. We appreciate yeah, but thank that. you so much for having me. It was a blast coming back on the podcast for episode 100. Glad I could be part of it some way. And that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And in fact, we would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so tell us what you thought. Anything we missed, anything you'd like us to revisit. Let's keep the conversation going on on Twitter at SaaS Growth Hub or on LinkedIn at the SaaS Growth Hub podcast. And if you don't want to miss the next episode, make sure you subscribe to Growth Hub on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. Until next time, cheers! cheers.